Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. Welcome to Talking Capital. Before we launch into the subject at hand, I'd like to begin by trailering a new development in this podcast. From now on, once a quarter, we're going to bring in a member of our investment research team to do a deep dive into a specific asset class. So you'll get to hear some new voices and you'll also get to hear about what our fund selection team is finding on the ground, both from our existing buy-list managers, the managers are in the portfolios at the moment, as well as the managers and strategies that we're actively researching. So next week, I'm thrilled that we're going to be joined by Investment Research Director Kunal Chafter, who's going to be covering public and private credit. On to the matter at hand. And Robert, perhaps we can start with, with a question or a riddle. So are granolas healthy for markets? Uh, and I'm talking, of course, about Europe's version of the American US Magnificent Seven. And the US are seven largest stocks by market caps, which continue to hoover up uh, equity market share. And in Europe's case, there are well, 11 or so stocks covering different sectors that represent some very powerful and important parts of the European economy and European equity market capitalization. But I suppose that leads us into this topic, doesn't it, of equity market concentration that we've talked about being very noticeable in the US and bringing with it risks, uh, both upside, but also downside that need to be managed. So Robert, can you talk a bit about equity market concentration outside the US? Is it Does it look anything like what we're seeing in the States? So if, uh, I think firstly, to give uh, give credit on Granola, that, w- that was an acronym of Goldman Sachs came up with um, in just around uh, April 2020, I think, of the uh, then the largest stocks in in Europe. Um, there's been a bit of movement, so they're no longer the largest. Uh, there are a few names that have come up, but I think it's interesting, and it shows the differences between US and Europe. Actually, the makeup of those those names. So, whereas the US. Yes, they're quite diversified businesses that do a lot of different things. If you think of Amazon in the, and Apple in consumer, um, Google search and ads and revenue from online investments or Tesla and electric vehicles. So there's quite a, quite a range, but still they're all really tech. Whereas the difference in Europe is actually, it's not all about tech in Europe, as we, as we all know. Yes, there are some tech names in there and no, most notably um, ASML has been a big European success story in the semiconductor space um, and remains a really important company in that area. But it's not just tech. Actually, there's a lot of healthcare. So a lot of those big parts of um, Granola, uh, Glaxo, Roche, etc. So the large pharma names. Within that, we've had a bit of excitement as well, I suppose, with the Azempic drug really 
uh, fueling the the growth of Novo Nordisk to such um, extreme heights. But we've got so we've got healthcare, tech, and also consumer, both staples and the luxury goods, so LVMH, Nestle, L'Oreal. So yes, it's quite more diversified would be the first point. And the second point is it's not as high growing. So it's not the fast um, shoot the lights out earnings growth. Actually, these are large caps, steady, solid earnings growth. They're quite defensive names. So they're the high quality compounders with high and stable margins, strong balance sheets, and actually a bit higher dividends as well. But that's sort of been the company you've wanted. And certainly, it, it shows that you can have quality companies within Europe. Now, yes, the valuations are a bit higher because they are quality companies, um, but they're not as expensive as the US on a relative basis. Yes, earnings haven't been as fast, but actually, stock price performance in the last two years, it's more or less kept pace. So you've more or less had the granolas have been as healthy for you as the Mag 7 over that period of time. And actually, the benefit has been it's been much lower volatility and much lower drawdown. So being more stable companies, they've delivered those returns without the big whipsaw of volatility in the middle. So yes, it, w- it was a healthy way to, to uh, invest in Europe coming out of COVID was to look at those, those compounders. And arguably, you do want quality compounders in the type of environment um, that we're, we're looking at at the moment. Um, now, I suppose the downside is they are still priced pretty expensively. So if you're trading at 30 times earnings, um, you are paying up for that quality um, company. Now, in the long run, return on equity um, and earnings will will support you. But starting valuations do matter, particularly if your hold period is five years or less. They, they really do um, take place, uh, really have an important um, component. So concentration is pretty high. And if we look at those, yes, they are a good piece of the, the market within Europe, but it's sort of half the concentration of the US. So those large names in the US um, are now making up, depending on which how far you cut the Magnificent Seven, let's say 25 to 30% of the market. It's pretty extreme. And when we look at broader concentration of the US, if we look at what's the top 10% by market value, what percentage of the overall total market, uh, we're reaching a peak now, last seen in 1929, of about three quarters of the market. It's a bit less than that now, but between 70, around 73% of the market um, is controlled by that top 10%, which is quite extreme. It's more extreme than the dot-com period, and that is a bit of a problem in the US. But when we break it down, why is the US more concentrated than Europe? So if we're looking at those top names there, the large five companies are the real key part. So large five companies in the US is around 23%. In Europe, yes, it's gone up, but it's still only about 13%. That's where the big difference lies. If you look at the next 10 companies, the the sixth to 15th largest companies, actually in Europe and the US, there isn't really much difference. So all the difference between what why the US is more concentrated than Europe is all about those top five. And the top five have been churning out earnings and they are really profitable companies, but that's where the, the problem has been. And the problem is not it's not just about earnings. Actually, the valuations on those companies have gone from quite cheap, actually, at the start of, let's say, 2012 to relatively expensive. You're certainly paying more than 
um, your fair share for those for those earnings. So concentration on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. It it can be the sign of an unhealthy market. It becomes more unhealthy when it's driven by the the valuation multiples rather than earnings. So that's why you really need to watch whether the earnings of those top five companies start to start to get um, have have some problems. And let's think, for example, um, competition. And also government regulatory action are, are some of the areas where they, their profit margins can start to get hit. But what does it mean for an investor today? You certainly don't shy away in the US or Europe from those companies. You do want quality companies at this period of time, but you should be a little bit careful when markets um, become that concentrated. You want to diversify a bit more broadly. So I think that really is an important point. Starting valuations really do matter. So there are a couple of points, I think, aren't there to tease out of there? Robert, so you're saying that concentration can come from expanded multiples or it can come from improving earnings, just very, very strong earnings, a company that is just uh, uh, very productive and very high earnings. Both of them can lead to concentration, but one is a more vulnerable one. Both diminish your diversification, but it's the concentration that comes from high valuation multiples that's really worrisome for your portfolios. That's the, the bigger bigger risk, the bigger enemy. Although even with earnings, the problem is you've got to believe in um, market economies at the end of the day, and competition is the cure for um, concentration in earnings in a, in a market that's functioning properly. And if there is uh, not any protection, or if, if we try and reduce the effects of monopolies, which I think ultimately will happen, um, new innovation is going to come along, and that does challenge the existing profit margins. And we see it across industries. Return on equities do decline over time. Um, and I think that's the gravity of markets that does work its way through in the end. So yes, earnings is better concentration than if it's driven by valuation multiples, but even high, extremely high profit margins and high earnings will get attacked in the end and return on equities will will decline over over periods of time. They, they, it can take a long time, but it's not some, it's not a process that you can uh, prevent uh, forever. As a slight digression, what do you think lies behind the fact that the US does produce and has produced over time such enormous businesses? Is it just a function of the size of the domestic market and the size of the economy? Well, I think they've got some really good natural advantages. Having a big landmass, contiguous landmass, and lots of consumers who are relatively well off is a fertile testing ground. And it's a well-educated population, lots of good universities. It's the home of innovation. So there have been lots of advantages uh, which do, uh, do help companies spring up. But actually, it's a relatively new thing, uh, venture capital in the last 100 years. I think the venture capital industry has been crucial, actually, to supporting that innovation and helping companies grow and get larger. And that's been a bit of a problem in Europe, as an example. It's not just the entrepreneurial uh, frontier spirit uh, in many ways of the US historically and and those good interplay of um, companies um, and uh, funding and capital, but actually having people willing to, to risk their capital at an early stage in return for equity, in return for sort of that entrepreneurial spirit to, to be unleashed really has been crucial. So I think venture ca- the, the actual financial markets, the venture capital industry was is a crucial advantage and has been for the US for, for the last 50 or 60 years in particular. Moving on to 
to the next topic, Robert. We now know officially that we have recessions in the in the UK and Japan. So let's perhaps talk a little bit about what that means for investors and perhaps shine the spotlight first on Japan. We've obviously talked here about Japanese equities being a tremendous relative opportunity amongst equity markets in the world today. Has the news about the economy changed our minds? Do we still have high conviction around Japanese stocks, the Japanese equity market? Yeah, so I think to, to those talk of recession last year that we had, this is a bit of the problem with the economic datings of recessions is you always find out later than the fact. And sure enough, quite a few economies have been in recession during um, 2023. Um, but does it matter? I think is the, is the thing. Well, because at the end of the day, a recession can be just technical recession. Typically in the, the press, it's talked about two quarters of negative growth. Does that really matter if you're sort of hovering around zero um, versus a really severe contraction, something that is actually going to lead to massive unemployment? I think that's why in the US, actually, recessions are dated by the NBER. And you look at a number of different measures, including labor market measures, as well as industrial production, to see um, if the economy is is entering into um, a true slump. And I think the problem with Japan, if we're to also take a step back, is it's an economy with such low trend growth um, that you're always hovering around zero. So the magic number of zero, are you plus or minus zero? If, you're, if your trend growth is pretty close to zero, um, you've, you've got a very big vulnerability to falling into recession, um, certainly in the technical variety quite, quite frequently. But no doubt, growth was slowing last year. Now, is that a good or a bad thing for stocks? Actually, to our point about the US and where you're worried is, the time to want to invest in an economy um, is actually when you are in recession and you're turning and uh, growth is starting to get less negative. So that second derivative, when you when that you're sort of bottoming out in a in a recessionary period, when unemployment's high, that's actually a good time to be investing in financial markets. Now we're not there in Japan. This is a pretty mild recession at the moment, but of itself, it's not anything to to be. Um, putting investors off from investing in Japan. It doesn't change the long-term um, story for Japan, which is built upon actually good, solid earnings growth, um, improvement in corporate governance, which is really crucial, um, and a cheap currency as well as cheap uh, as well as cheap companies uh, with solid balance sheets. So I think you've still all those fundamentals remain in place. Now, it's not to say that if we do enter into a broader recession this year, and growth does look to be slower in a number of areas, it won't be a headwind for Japanese equities. I think short term, you would have a headwind uh, for Jap Japanese equities in that position. It's just actually more on a medium term view, Japanese equities still look a relatively attractive place um, to, to look. Um, so I, I don't think it changes our case on investing in equities. Um, but it, it is a good sign, actually, of, of the slowdown we've seen towards the end of the last year, including the UK as well. Now, arguably, based on current data, yes, we've been in recession, but there are some signs that maybe it's bottoming in the UK. So again, to that point, maybe growth, certainly in the short term, could have been worse um, in the end of last year. And we may be coming 
um, out of that period of growth. So I think that's why we need to be a little cautious in both of those cases about what um, recession means. I think for the UK, it's more of a problem because it's a period of persistent growth below trend. Really, since 2007, uh, we've had these two big step downs. One is post the GFC and, and lost productivity from financial services sector. But then again, post-COVID, we've not recovered. And we're fundamentally um, a large way from um, getting back to trend growth in the UK. So the, between the two, the economic position certainly looks more difficult in the UK than Japan. So it seems in a way that really only a US recession matters to global markets. Is that fair? It certainly matters the most. The US is the big beast that uh, affects a large number of other um, economies. And we've had periods, again, with recession, which doesn't damage markets. I think you've also got to think it can move in both directions, that correlation or causation. Often, markets were the... Um, early indicator for economic activity so that market would swoon and that then leads to uh, a damage in sentiment a damaging corporate investment activity consumer activity which leads to an economic slump so the market can foreshadow um, a recession to come and that may well be the case this time round as well so actually data in the us is looking better than the rest of the regions and that itself is a problem as we said in in two ways is the first way is actually on the financing condition side it means it's less likely rates are going to be cut in the us and expectations are in a number of cuts this year um, were, were far too high at the start of the year um, but as the market resets to actually rates won't be cut so much that then can lead to economic problems and certainly can lead to market problems which are priced on uh, on, on uh, low interest rates. So rising rates may be the mechanism for a decline in markets, which then can lead to a loss in growth. So in a way, what matters for markets, it could be the markets matter for the economy as much as the other way around. Moving on to um, next topic, Robert, which is a lead in a way to Canal's appearance next week. Let's look at credit as an asset class. Kunal is going to talk about what it looks like from a fund selector's perspective. But I wonder, Robert, if you can, in a way, set the scene within which Kunal is operating and, and give us a sense of the context for this forthcoming discussion by setting the scene from an asset allocation and strategy point of view. So how, how, how do we use credit in portfolios? Yes, so I think... When we look at credit and certainly what our experience, how we've invested with credit, we've had very few investments in credit over the last um, 10 years. Uh, in fact, our real only exposure over that period of time uh, was briefly during COVID. In April 2020, spreads blew out and they were wide enough uh, that it posed an attractive opportunity. So we invested in high yield um, credit. But the only problem was the spreads had completely uh, compressed by the end of the year. So actually, we, we through our valuation discipline, sold um, that credit exposure um, in December. So we made the money and pocketed the gains. But more broadly, when, when is credit attractive against equity and um, debt? That's the, the sort of mix of risks. You've got some duration risk, some equity risk, or credit. And 
at the heart of it, the the real risk is the risk of recession, the risk of default, uh, which you run with both, and that's sort of your equity exposure, but you also have um, some duration exposure as well. So actually, that's something we look at every single month in our asset allocation meeting to see that trade-off, those balance of risks. Is it better to be holding credit or better to be holding equity? And uh, briefly, our indicator po- uh, flash positive for credit in um, in 2020. But it's been in the the territory of not being uh, attractive for a large period of time. Now, when can and does credit look appealing? Typically, it's as you go into recession, credit is the asset class which turns earlier than equities. So spreads balloon out and credit becomes on a relative basis from both components more attractive than the mix or mixture of equities and bonds. And certainly that's what you would expect. And then credit in the early part of a recession spreads compress and recover and credit does better. And then you have a period actually where equity markets do better. And certainly if we take a look back at the last big blowout, which was a credit event, admittedly, after the GFC, credit outperformed equity from the midst of the crisis for the next three, three years or so. Uh, depending on the market of credit. But then really, you've wanted to be an equity investor for the following period. And that sort of is is what we would expect to, to come. Actually, there, there can be uh, a need for credit in some portfolios the whole time. But really, when do you really want credit? It's around these turning points in markets when credit can give you equity-like returns, uh, but with a with more protection from your uh, position in the corporate structure. Now, Having said that sort of preamble, why are we starting to get excited? So as an investment team, where have we been leading research? And this is where we, we sort of identified at the start of last year, we think the period is coming where credit's going to look appealing. Um, that was something we identified in our sort of year ahead team meetings. And Kunal has been leading the research efforts in that regard over the last um, year. And it sort of like, it brings me to the Wayne Gretzky phrase about ice hockey is you don't go to the puck. Uh, you go where you look where the puck is going, and that's where you want to 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 get ready. And it's the same way for credit. Um, at the moment, spreads are really, really compressed. Uh, in fact, if we look at the U.S. high yield spreads, they're just slightly north of three percent. Um, so it, it looks like a very uh, you're not getting rewarded for taking credit risk in this environment. Now, yes, yields are higher, but most of that is because interest rates have gone up. But if we are in this period of turning point uh, in the economic cycle, and we think growth is going to get worse and deteriorate and defaults are likely to increase, spreads will widen. And that will be a very appealing time when rates themselves are higher and also credit spreads that get higher. So that's why we've been taking the last year to really try and find the the hidden gems, get the active managers that we really think can take advantage of this this likely period of um, uh, sort of a default wave coming uh, in response to the parts of the market which were had whose balance sheets were too over levered actually um, start to be put under pressure by higher financing costs. So that's that's what we we're expecting and anticipating is a period where credit managers can do very well compared to equity and debt, a period where defaults are likely to increase. So we we were looking for exposure within both managers which can take a longer term. Um, position in the distress space, so locking up capital for longer, but also in the more liquid space in the stress credit markets. So that's really been the key focus of our research over the last um, year or so. Can we talk a bit, Robert, about public and private credit and the differing outlook for 
for both because, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk for a while about the attractions of private credit, that is lending to businesses or lending to assets uh, with a with a loan rather than a than a bond and and that continues but i think what you're talking about there robert is more the opportunity in the in the public space and as you say it's not an opportunity now so much as an opportunity that we want to be ready for and which we're anticipating um, well, it can be an opportunity actually in 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 either so i think if in a stress position for the economy um actually at the margins people that were putting forward um, capital in the private market start to pull back and start to tighten their lending criteria. That can be a really appealing time to to come in and stand in and be the lender. So I think a stressed environment can lead to opportunities both in private and public markets. Um, Now, you can capture some of the more liquid markets uh, in in terms of bonds, can capture the opportunity maybe a bit quicker in some some cases. But but if you've got a high-quality um, team, there, there is the opportunity in both spaces. Now, I think the last, I think the GFC was a big watershed moment in the sense of what did it set off? It set off the the uh, atomic bomb in a way in terms of the financial sector, and it made banks fundamentally change a lot of their practices. And the the, the large pullback of capital from banks uh, really was an opportunity for for other lenders to to take advantage and step into that position and take and and take advantage of the the higher spreads that are available and also the other costs um, to set up loans and originate loans. Um, so there has been this big growth of of private lending in the last ten years um, outside the banking sector. Now there are some signs the banks are trying to get back into the market a little bit, or certainly some of the larger banks. So that's not necessarily a good sign, but that, that is uh, that is beginning to happen. Uh, but overall, it's actually a good news um, that there are this, this broader uh, sort of availability of credit from a number of different lenders. And the people who are putting forward the capital to those private lenders actually should be the institutions that can weather a bit more of the storm. So that's probably a better news than having banks with their uh, balance sheets dependent on deposit- flighty depositors actually having more stable long-term capital, again, is it structurally good news. So it's a good development. Now, looking at the spreads that are available, spreads are not super wide. I think the big move up, why does private credit been the darling investment in the last year or so, a lot of investors looking at it, is you can get yields of 10 to 14% on different um, different loans. But a lot of that was because the overnight interest rates have gone up dramatically. The spreads themselves were around sort of historic averages. They were, certainly weren't pricey in recession. And also you had the benefit of floating rate paper. So again, loans versus bonds, there could be advantages. You protect yourself against rising interest rates um, in that environment. So that, that again, was appealing for, for investors. So decent, high, attractive yields, um, for investors that don't necessarily need the liquidity, uh, it's been an interesting place to look. But I think for us, the two parts is, and Kunal will touch on this in a lot more detail next time, is I think distress itself is an opportunity. So it's not just about um, direct lending to corporates who need the exposure, high quality corporates. Actually, it's about if we're in for this cycle, there will be people that are forced to borrow penalizing rates. And uh, we're going to see that. And we're already seeing it in pockets of the market. So, for example, commercial real estate uh, is one 
area that we talked about, Ross talked about last year, and I've talked about it in other podcasts. What we're seeing in the commercial real estate market, now residential has not been the the, the heart of the problem, but actually there's been a big sell-off. So worldwide, inflation-adjusted prices in the uh, commercial real estate market, we've seen a downturn of between 10 and 15%, which is sort of akin to what we've seen in the GFC, the early 90s or the early 70s type environment. So we've seen quite a big loss. And for in, ter- in terms of uh, potential damage, it takes a while given the refinancing um, to occur for the problems to, to, to feed their way through the system. And clearly, the office sector has been at the heart of the issues that there have been in terms of structural lack of demand for office space. But actually, if we're saying 14% of all US commercial real estate loans are expected to be in negative equity at the moment, and about 44% in the um, office sector, that's a lot of issues. It's a large amount of capital that, that potentially could be impaired. So that's just one example, higher rates, problem in credit. The problem will lead to distress. And it actually, it's good news to have a mild recession and the distress cycle to last a while uh, for those managers to take advantage. So I think it's less about trying to lend to fundamental, or, or that's not where we see the opportunity. I think one of the areas we see the opportunity is um, taking advantage of potential pockets of distress um, in the next 12 to 24 months. And secondly, I think in terms of sort of opportunity in credit markets, I think there will come an opportunity in the private lending space. But again, it's better to get into that period lending to fundamentally solvent companies when spreads have um, become a bit wider. And I, I, the one thing I would just draw the analogy as well, when we talked earlier about concentration, um, actually, one of the reasons why the small cap sector has done so badly is a natural response to say that a lot of those companies in the small cap sector are those with pretty levered balance sheets and, and not looking uh, and sort of more under pressure from rising rates. Um, so that, again, it's the quality of the lending, the quality of the covenants that really matters. And that's why focus on balance sheets is really important. So again, it's the discrimination in the origination of those loans, which is important, as well as the starting point going in uh, when spreads are a bit wider. Robert, thank you. So watch this space. Uh, We have Kunal coming next week to talk in more detail about the opportunity that Robert is, is outlining. How do you actually put that into practice? How do you deploy capital? Who are the managers that we're looking at and thinking of? So Uh, Robert, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, 
reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com. Thank you.